All right, well, good afternoon again. Um, if you want to start making your way back to your seats, we'll kind of pause our conversations for just a moment, and then we will uh, get, uh, we'll resume them after the gathering today. Um, before we dig into Jonah chapter 3, you can start turning there. Um, if, you, if you already have a Bible with you, if you didn't bring a Bible today and you need one, um, then you can grab them on the table that's in the back of the room, um, which you'll find there with the giving box as well. Um, there, straight in the back of the room. Um, so you can pick up not just a Bible there, but also books that are free from us to you. We would love for you to have uh, plenty of good, um, sound, uh, helpful books to read that will help us all know our Savior better. So everything back there on that table, that is free for you to grab and take home with you today. Now as we go into Jonah chapter 3, um, we're going to read this whole chapter today. We have just two weeks left, counting today, of our series through the book of Jonah. Um, last or Next week, sorry, we'll be finishing that up. And I'm excited to sort of get to the very end of the book. Um, but today, in some ways, is like maybe the mountaintop experience of the book. Like if this was a movie, this is probably the, the um, climax of the movie in many ways. Um, if the, the fish scene, if we think of it as a scene, if that's sort of a low point for Jonah, one of several low, low points in this story, then this is sort of where the story comes together and seems to be moving up and moving in a more positive way. Um, and so that's where we are today. I want to say thanks to Jeremy who preached last week as he spoke about Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish and how we see in there the, the truth that God's grace and his mercy come to those not who are perfect and not who are well-constructed and, and um, deserving, but his grace and his mercy comes to those who are humble enough to seek it. That's, that's where it shows up. And today, um, we're going to go through Jonah chapter 3. I'd love for us to read this passage together now. Um, so if you're able, I'd love to invite you to stand with us. Uh, we stand here at Maranatha as we read God's Word, not because it's some religious thing to do or because it's some kind of magic trick, but we stand just simply out of reverence for God as we read it together. So we're going to read jo uh, Jonah 3, 1 through 10 here together. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called, a fast, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and his beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Let's pray together. Father God, as we open your word, we pray that you would give us wisdom to understand it, um, 
Lord, to not just hear it, but to receive it in faith, to obey it. And we pray for the ways that we need to be convicted that you would convict us, the way that we need to be encouraged where our hearts are tired. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us with your truth. And we pray that of all these things, we would see a greater picture of you and your grace and the work that you are doing in our lives on this earth, redeeming us to yourselves. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So today, um, in Jonah chapter 3, I think we'll see one thing. If there's really a central theme for us to focus on, it's the power of God for salvation. To borrow from Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, the very end, the idea for today is that salvation and the power for salvation belong to God. They belong to the Lord. Salvation and the power of salvation belong to the Lord. And we see this in a few different ways in Jonah chapter 3. We see this um, in three kind of bigger sections here. We see God's patience with Jonah at the very beginning. We also see this real and true repentance that happens in the city of Nineveh. And then lastly, we see the action of God on display in verse 10. So we see we're going to visit Jonah, we're going to visit the people of Nineveh, and then God himself. Now, it's really amazing as we read verse 1 of chapter 3, I don't want us to forget what scene we just left in Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. So Jonah has been told already once to go to Nineveh, to just give a a quick summary of all the events. He's been told to go to Nineveh, but Jonah does not like Nineveh. He has his reasons for that, and some of them, as we said at the beginning, are valid reasons, because Nineveh is not a great city full of great people. Nineveh is the capital city of an evil empire that is uh, terrorizing many people, including Jonah's nation. And so Jonah has his reasons, and he says to God, no, I'm not going to go to Nineveh. And then he finds himself in a boat that he has decided to go in the opposite direction. God puts a storm on the sea, casts Jonah into the sea, and then saves his life through a fish, bringing him back to land. And now Jonah has been spat back up onto the shore. I don't think that he was uh, well-groomed and well-collected at this point in the story. I can see Jonah sitting on the shore, trying to figure out, first of all, where exactly he is. Probably very tired. I don't think that you sleep too well inside of a fish. Um, Probably very um, out of sorts and not sure exactly what he's supposed to do next. He just knows that he's been saved. And that's where God comes to him again and gives him the exact same command. Almost word for word, the exact same thing. And God shows him his grace. Just like he's shown Jonah grace throughout this whole story. Because in Jonah we see this reminder that God's grace is not dependent on how ready we are for it or how cleaned up we are or how in order our hearts already are before God's grace. Right? God gave Jonah the command to go to Nineveh, first of all, even though he knew that Jonah was not going to follow it. God was not shocked at the beginning of the story when Jonah said no. He wasn't like, okay, I better figure out something to do with the ocean so that Jonah ends up where I want him to be. And he's also not surprised now when he asked Jonah to go again to Nineveh. He knows that Jonah's heart is still not fully reconciled to him. He knows that Jonah's heart is not fully in this command to go to Nineveh, as we'll see next week. Right? Jonah's heart hasn't been completely fixed yet, but God still gives him this command and shows him grace because God's grace is not dependent on how perfectly holy Jonah's heart is. 
Now, there are two traps that we can fall into when we recognize that, okay? The first thing, the first trap is that we might say, well, God shows me grace even when I'm caught up in sin, so he must not care about sin all that much, right? If God, if God, if we're gonna play real shallow, if God loves me just the way I am, he must not care about sin. I don't have to worry about it too much. Now, that's one trap. The other trap, I think, is that we would say um, that he must he must just be sitting there giving us chances to obey, right? That's what God's grace is. It's nothing more than another chance to obey, another chance to obey, another opportunity. Now, both of those things are sort of true, but less than the full truth. Now, the truth is that even though God um, gives us grace when we are caught up in sin, that doesn't mean that he is at peace with sin, and it also doesn't mean that we should be at peace with sin either. Nor does it mean that God's sin or grace is so passive that he's just lobbing up opportunities, hoping that we take him up on obedience. He didn't do that with Jonah this whole time. He doesn't do it with us. In reality, what God's grace does is it does something active. God's grace is at work, and it's in it, at work in the direction of moving us from sin, where we are caught and enslaved to holiness. It's moving us from sin. It finds us there, right? Grace, God's love, finds us there in our sin, and there are no prerequisites for that. Praise God for that. But he doesn't leave us there. And just like he's not at peace with that sin, we shouldn't be at peace with that sin either. I mean, look at what Jonah does. If he didn't care about sin, then he would have just left Jonah, I don't know, to go off and go to Tarshish like he was planning. He wouldn't have gone through all the trouble of putting Jonah in a fish and then bringing that fish back to dry land. If he didn't care about sin, there wouldn't have been a massive storm on the sea, which was a picture of his wrath towards sin. And all the while, he's not leaving Jonah in his sin. He's not leaving Jonah in the failures of his heart. Right? He is working with Jonah to make his heart less sinful and more freed from sin. And this is good news for you and me. This isn't just uh, a fun little point to make. This is really good news for you and me because it's a reminder of the fact that God doesn't, again, leave us enslaved to the sin that we are enslaved to. He doesn't leave us there. To the sin that condemns us and puts us separated from God, he doesn't leave us there. And it's a reminder that he is incredibly patient. God is incredibly patient. Patient. I mean, think about Jonah, and if you were Jonah's um, parent trying to give him these commands, or if you were God, and you were telling Jonah, and you spoke clearly to him, and you know that this guy can hear you, because he has been a prophet for many years, and he's been obedient for many years, and then you tell him to go to this one place, and all of a sudden he's like, nope, that's where the line is drawn. And I'm not just going to sit at home, I'm going to run opposite direction from you to, to basically rub it in your face that I am not doing what you told me to do. And think about how frustrating that would be if you're in that position and if you weren't God. And yet at the same time, God doesn't give up on his children, his grace doesn't run out on Jonah. His grace is painful, the discipline of God is hard, right? It's not pleasant for Jonah to be in the storm. It's not fun discipline from God, but he is patient. And that's good news for you and me. Church, there is never a time when God's grace is done working with you. 
You, can, you walk with Christ for 30, 40, 50, I don't care how many years, and you could commit the greatest sin you've ever committed 50 years later. And in that moment, you still can stand in Christ just as free, just as justified, just as forgiven. And you can also trust that God is going to keep freeing you from that. He's not just going to say, well, that one was pretty big. That's the straw that breaks the camel's back. So God, in his patience and his goodness, tells Jonah again to go to this exceedingly great city of Nineveh. Great is only a description of its size, right? Remember, if you weren't here at the very beginning as we talked about Nineveh, two things to remember that are important about it. It is giant and it's evil. If you go to the book of Nahum in chapter 3, actually, there's a description where it just says it's basically the most violent and bloodthirsty city on the earth. That people there look for sin and they find it. And again, this is a city and a nation that is enemies with the nation of Israel. And God again tells Jonah to go there because he wants to show them grace. He doesn't care that Jonah doesn't want to show them grace. He wants to show them grace. And so Jonah does go to his credit and bring the message of God to them. Um, I don't think that, I think he said more than just this one sentence of, uh, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I think that's a summary of what Jonah said to them in that city. Um, But we have to recognize in this point that the message of God for them was not warm and fuzzy, right? Even if this is just a summary, it's, it's not a happy summary to be given if you were handed that message. Now, that's an important reminder for you and me. Jonah had to give them not just the pleasant news, but the difficult news. The pleasant news of you can be forgiven was set against the backdrop of you need to be forgiven. And you and I sometimes in our modern age, we can be really afraid to tell anybody the bad part of the good news. Or even if it's the bad part, just the reality. You and I wish the way that we work, the way that we human beings work, we wish that the message of the gospel was just that God is okay with you and now just decide if you want to go to heaven. Does it sound like a good place to live eternally? Okay, if it doesn't, that's all you have to think about. That's what we wish the reality was. And if that was reality, then that would be a loving thing to tell people. But that's not the actual reality. The good news is set against a backdrop of bad news. Because the reality for you and me is that all of us, as Romans 3 says, we have fallen short of God's glory. We have turned away, as it also says in Romans 3, that none of us seek God. Indeed, no one does. That's the reality that we have to actually tell people about. And thankfully, that news continues, not just with the reality of um, sin and punishment, but the reality that Jesus Christ came to rescue us from that bad news, to live, to die, to be buried, to be raised, raised again, so that all of the anger that is actually there for sin can be poured out so that sinners who claim the name of Jesus Christ experience none of it. Listen, you have to tell people the entire truth because that is the only truth that saves. It is, people are not, um, they do not, they're not going to heaven 
because they just look to God one day without any recognition of sin or His holiness, and they just say, God, I want to go to heaven. We, we are saved. We are transferred into the kingdom of Christ when we recognize that we need to be forgiven and we have to cling to Jesus to forgive us. So do your neighbors and your friends, your family members, do them the favor of telling them the entirety of the truth. Not just the parts that are easy to tell. Not just the parts that won't offend them and won't make Thanksgiving awkward. Now when Nineveh hears this word, we move from Jonah, we move into Nineveh here. When Nineveh hears this news in verse 5, they repent, they believe. It says that the people believed God. They call for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. I think it's important that the Bible spells out here that the the repentance of Nineveh was top down and bottom to the top. It was the entirety of the city. It wasn't a partial repentance about a few things. It was an entire repentance of everyone for everything. And so many times we mess around with partial repentance in our lives. And I get it, it's super easy to do. We want to we wanna repent or turn away, walk away from the sins that we are also tired of, right? When God convicts us of something and we actually still like that one, but we don't care for this one anymore, we're like, okay, God, I'll move away from this. He's like, that's great, but that's not what we're talking about over here. And to Nineveh's credit, they just turn away from all of it. You, you see them even, uh, they name it out when it says that they need to turn away from the evil and the violence that is in their hands. If any sin was the chief sin of Nineveh, it was uh, the violence, and they turn away from that. In some ways, the, the deepest part of their way of life, they turned away from because they recognized it didn't matter how normal it was to them or how deep a part of a way of life it was. If it wasn't, if it wasn't holy, if it wasn't pleasing to God, it has to be left behind. This begs the question in our mind of what repentance actually is, because repentance is a word that we talk about in church all the time. I'm sure you've heard it countless times if you've been in church uh, once. I hope, I hope that you've heard it at least once, if you've been in church at least once. Um, it is the central message in many ways of Christianity. It's the first thing that Jesus said when he started his ministry, the first words out of his mouth, so it's pretty important. When we talk about repentance, we are talking about four really important parts of it. The first part of repentance is a real um, recognition or confession of sin, of the actual sin, like specific confession. So it's not just, God, I'm sorry that I was sinful two weeks ago, even though you don't know what it was or what you're actually talking about, right? The people of Nineveh named the name of their sin. This is what's wrong. This is what I must repent of. So it's not good for us to just say, God, I'm sorry when I struggled um, with lying two weeks ago. At least I think I did that, right? Or I'm sorry that I was sinful. We need to say, God, I lied when I said this. Forgive me of this. It was wrong, God, when I looked at that pornography. Forgive me of that. It was wrong, God, when I was greedy in this way. Forgive me for that. There's a real recognition of the actual sin, not just like cliches that we kind of skirt around our actual sins with. And next they move from confession that produces a real and true mourning or grief over our sin. 
Real repentance has an actual, like our hearts break for the fact of sin. Not just, not just breaking because we are caught, because the consequences are not what we prefer, because it's not a fun moment, but an actual grief over the sin itself. And not just a grief because, oh, I made God mad. It's a grief because we recognize that sin is not good. It's not good for us. And we are grieved by that. And after those two things, if that's the first stage of it, then what comes after that is relying upon God's character and turning away from sin. Relying on God's character and turning away from sin. You see this even here in the verses where um, the message from the king of Nineveh says they need to turn away, to turn from the sin, to stop doing it, to put an end to it, not just to pause our sin temporarily until stuff blows over, not just wait a week so we can do it again, but to actually put it away, and not just that, but to call on God. To call on God, because who knows? God may forgive us. There's a desperation here and a reminder that it is, it is up to God to forgive. And so we don't rely on our own repentance, okay? Something really important, church. Do not, do not think that you are right with God because you are repenting well or you're repenting good enough, or thoroughly enough, and, and you're doing such a good job. The cornerstone of your faith is not how well you are catching your sins, confessing them, and, and repenting, and how perfectly you've performed in this arena. The bedrock of your faith is that God says that he will forgive your sin. And so you go to God and you say, God, I am heartbroken over this, this thing that I did. I am heartbroken over my sin, and I don't want to do it anymore. But ultimately, God, you must forgive me. Please forgive me. And the good news is that we have assurance that he does. And look in verse 10. It says that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. He did not do it. As we head into this section, I just want to warn you that I might throw out a fair amount of references and verses, um, and so if you want to, you can just convert to like writing some of these down to look up later. That's fine, um, but this is actually, this one sentence I think is an incredibly uh, deep and important thing for us to understand. So whenever we read this, if we think about God in human terms, and we read this verse, and it seems like um, God is saying that he saw them react, he saw them repent, and he was shocked by it, and he was pleasantly surprised. And he's like, okay, cool, I'm not mad anymore, I'll move on to something else. Because that's how, that's how we work, right? That's how we experience um, reality and, and changes in life. What actually happened here, I think, I think the Bible in some ways is putting into, um, into our terms what is happening with God. And so what is really happening here is that God had declared his, declared his judgment to Nineveh in order to be the means of their repentance so that his judgment would not come. You know what I'm saying there? The cause is, is God, God knew the whole time. He wasn't surprised that Nineveh repented. Just like he wasn't surprised when Jonah said no and then Jonah said yes. Or he wasn't surprised when there was a storm on the sea or when Jonah got swallowed by a fish or when that fish spat Jonah up on dry land. He wasn't surprised by any of those things. 
What happened is that God declared his judgment to Nineveh so that they would repent, so that he would not give them judgment. If you think I'm just making this up, I promise um, there's a lot of verses we could turn to about this, but the, the weight of Scripture is overwhelming, that God knows the end from the beginning. Um, Isaiah 46.10 uh, says it this way, 46.9 and 10, actually, I think. If we pick it up there, uh, we, see, we see that it says this, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So all these things that happen, they weren't just known by God. They weren't just um, greeted far away. He wasn't surprised when they happened. He didn't even, you know, like look ahead and just kind of see what would happen before it did. He declared what would happen. He declares all things, and he can do that because he's God. So God isn't shocked here precisely because this is a miracle. This is a miraculous thing. We just read this and we already know the story and we just think, oh, this is the part where Nineveh repents. You get the idea that a, na- uh, a, a city that was so big that it took three days to walk across it. You could cross Columbus in less than a day if you're walking and you set your mind to it, right? It takes three days to walk across a city. At least walk, if not on a horse even, if they were talking about a day's journey. So three whole days to walk across the city, that's a huge city filled with people who are far from God, who are not seeking God, and they just repent. That's a miraculous moment. We get soaked up on the, the fish, and we're like, oh man, I wonder how that happened. It, it, and I get it, because that's also miraculous, but the point is, is that saving thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sinners is miraculous. Can you imagine if that happened in our city? Can you imagine if one day the entire city of Canal Winchester, if God revealed himself to, the, to them in a way that the entirety of the city just said, we need to turn back. Man, I wish that would happen. And this happens, and God knows that it's happening because he knows it's a miracle and he is at work. He isn't just... He didn't just pause, take his hands off, pause his wrath and say, all right, see what happens in Nineveh. Do I have to keep being angry or not? No, instead he gives to Nineveh the gift of repentance. Repentance is given as a gift to Nineveh. That's how repentance is always given. That's how repentance is all, it always shows up. There is a reality to the fact that repentance is a command, right? It's something that, like I said, Jesus, the first thing he said in his ministry was a command to repent. And at the same time, repentance is given as a gift. There's lots of verses that we could turn to in this, um, in this arena, but two of them that I'll put up on the screen here are in, in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, verse 31, and then also in Acts chapter 11 just so that we can see that I promise you I'm not making this up. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Um, this is speaking of Jesus. This is in the middle of a sermon that is preached in the early church. And Peter says, um, we, this is right before 31. He says, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. 
Verse 31, God exalted him, Jesus, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. To give repentance. Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God to gift repentance to sinners who need it. Also in Acts chapter 11, verse 31, this comes at a time where the early Jewish Christians were having a real difficulty believing that the Gentile Christians were accepted by God. And so this verse comes to happen, the, um, the Gentile Christians, God gives them verification that they are in fact saved by Christ. And so the Jewish Christians say this, and when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted or given repentance that leads to life. Even more in 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul goes on there to say that we ought to pray, and then he says, who knows, God may grant them repentance that they would be saved. So repentance is given as a gift, and it has to be given as a gift. It's really important because what we need as people is not just more opportunities to repent. Okay, you and I, our problem as humans is not just that we need more chances to follow God. That would be great if, if sin wasn't what sin is and if we weren't as broken by sin and this universe wasn't as broken by sin as it is. We think of sin as um, actions that happen out there. In reality, sin is both actions that happen out there, but it's also a fundamental, a, a thing that fundamentally corrupts in here. And so what we need is not just another chance to repent, a chance to obey God, to follow God, to believe God. If the machine is broken and you keep on just giving it another chance to build something, it just makes another broken thing, right? You can reboot it. You can put more fuel into it, right? You tear, if you just reset the check engine light on your car and you don't fix it, which I'm sure all of us have done at least once in our lives, and then we turn the car back on and we're just like, maybe it won't come on this time. It's going to pop back on because the same problem is wrong with it. What's broken needs to be rebuilt. This is what the Bible talks about when it talks about being given repentance or being given a new heart or a new spirit, about being born again. Ezekiel 36, where God says that he's going to put a new spirit in Israel. He's going to put a new heart, one that is not stone and dead, but flesh and alive. And it's beating and it knows him and it longs to follow him. Being given a new heart, or even from the mouth of Jesus himself, when he says to, to uh, Nicodemus, when he says that unless you are born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. We need not just a chance, we need God to fundamentally rebuild us in his grace to give that to us. Now why on earth am I obnoxiously hammering this idea into the ground? Because at this point, you're probably like, David, that's like not even, you know, this, this uh, doctrinal digression is not even in this verse. I get it. Um, the reason that I'm hammering this in is because I believe this is extremely important and good news for you and me. It might not sound like it at first. It might sound weird. It might sound almost wrong. The idea that we are helpless and we need to be given repentance but this is fundamentally very good news. 
You see, it means that Nineveh didn't repent because they had like some kind of seed of repentance already in them that was just waiting for some news or instruction from God, and then it sprouted forth from inside of them. It means that Nineveh didn't have anything in them at all that warranted God sending them a prophet, that, that warranted God giving them an opportunity to repent. It didn't, they didn't have any power in them to actually do it. They weren't seeking God and just in need of a bit more instruction from a guy named Jonah. They weren't neutral. They were like all of us, the rest of us, when before grace works in our lives, as it says in Colossians, alienated and hostile to God, truly separated from him. And so what this means is that God gave them salvation, even though there was, again, nothing in them at all. There was no power for salvation at all in that city. And this, again, is really important truth for you and I. Nineveh did not make it out of God's wrath because they were good enough on their own or because they had a few um, things inside them that were strong enough to repent. And because of that, I want you to understand this, because of the fact that it has nothing to do with us and that we have no power, that means that today the promise stands that it doesn't matter who you are and how far you've been from God and how much you have hated him and how much you have turned away from him, how many times you have not listened to him. It doesn't matter how little regard you have paid for him. It doesn't matter how, how just totally bankrupt you or I may be. The promise stands that you can be totally forgiven by God right now. You can stand completely justified in front of God. Without condition, without the wonder of, oh, I, I, I just, I wonder if I have anything good enough in me that God would love me. I wonder if I'm doing well enough at repenting. I wonder if I'm believing him hard enough. I don't know. Like, I, I wonder if I'm doing this right enough. Instead, you get to trust in the fact that the salvation of Nineveh started with God and, fi- and was finished by God, and the salvation of you was started by God and finished by him. It was started by him, and church, he will finish it. And when we are on our deathbeds, and we are very close to that, praise God, it is finished by him. You don't have to worry about that at all. For all those who trust in Jesus and the fact that his work is finished, It was finished on the cross for any sinner, anywhere, who calls on his name. That salvation is there. So you don't have to worry about your contribution to it. You don't have to worry about the fact that it didn't start with you. You get to trust in the fact that it was started by God and his power will seal it until the end. He is the author and pioneer of our faith. He is the assurance and finisher of our faith. And so today, you can repent and trust in Jesus, whether it is your first time that you have ever gone to God and sought forgiveness, whether you have run from God the entirety of your life, whether you have never once recognized your sin, your need for salvation, 
You can go to him then, you can go to him for the 400th time in your life, and you can have every assurance that his grace and mercy are sure for you. 1 John 1, 9 says that we know this, that God, when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The king of Nineveh here has very little revelation from God. And so what does he say? He says, call out mightily to God. Try to mourn for a lot of days. Put on your sackcloth and be mournful. And who knows, God may turn and relent. Church, you don't have to do that. You don't have to wonder if God is going to, if God is going to forgive you. You have a promise from God's mouth himself in 1 John where he says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just. He is. He will forgive you all your sin and cleanse you. Not just forgive you, right, but cleanse you, bring you out of all unrighteousness. So today, if you feel like a horrible Christian and you just feel like it's been a week where you have turned from God and not sought him like you should, if you feel like it's been a year or a five years or a decade or more where you have not sought him like you should, you do not have to beat yourself up. You don't have to hold yourself in the penalty box until like the wrath of God cools down a little bit. You turn to Christ and you claim his blood shed for your sins, even if they're extremely recent or extremely far in the past, doesn't matter. There's no wrath over your head. It is forgiven. And you can also go and tell your friends and your family and your neighbors, you can tell them this news without fear because you have understood that the power of God is the power of salvation. Right? Jonah can go in here and be bold and speak exactly what God says because he knows that this nation will turn by the power of God. And so when you speak to somebody and you're afraid about what to say to them and, and it's tempting to just not say anything at all, it's tempting just to move on, I want you to be encouraged that you can speak in all boldness knowing this kind of power that is at work from God in salvation. That if he can save the entirety of the city of Nineveh, he can handle your neighbor. He can handle your mom, your dad, whoever it may be. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. So speak of Jesus in this way. He's not a weak Savior. He's not a Savior who is um, hoping to be accepted. He is the King of all kings. And you do not need to repent halfway. It does you no good. Come to Christ no matter when it is. You can go to God because Christ has done it all. And you can be certain of this. You don't have to ask and wonder how God feels about you. You can be certain about this because you know that God has sent his son, right? Jonah in this story, we've talked about it over and over again. He only points to the story of Christ that is coming later. And so we know that Christ has actually come. And he lived on this earth a perfect life so that he could give that, right, that righteous record, record of perfection to you. Not to hold on to it for himself, to give it to you. He died so that your sin could be uh, killed on the cross. He was buried so that your sin could be put into the grave. And he raised from the dead so that your sin would stay in the grave. And you could be raised to life. That is news that is good. 
and it is certain, and we can be sure of it, because the power of salvation is entirely from God. Let's pray together. Father, as we have opened your word, Lord, we have seen your good promises, and we pray that you would help us to trust in them, to believe them, and Lord, to be obedient sons and daughters that live in holy joy all of our lives because we have a great Father who loves us and has sent His Son to reconcile us back to Himself. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.